Welcome to QD Clinic. Yeah, QD Clinic is back. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic, we usually discuss cases and vignettes and things of interest to me because I think they may be of interest to you. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now's coverage of ACR 21. Be sure to tune in. Today we're talking about numbers. Why numbers? Well, I was editing last-minute edits of my chapter in Harrison's textbook on the approach to articular and musculoskeletal disorders. I've been writing this since 1987, which means I've done a bunch of chapters. This is the 21st edition. Um, this is chapter 370. It's about the evaluation of patients with musculoskeletal complaints. I thought a lot about this. Um, I hope you get to read the chapter and give me your input on what you think I missed. It's really hard to codify in a short and um, concise and accurate way how to evaluate musculoskeletal complaints. It's not easy, and that's why you're as good as you are. But I think it's a good chapter, but it brings up some numbers that I want you to re keep in mind and review in your head. As you know, the CDC has come up with some recent numbers that one in four Americans have arthritis. That's 58 million and also, the CDC has also gone with a number that says, of those people with arthritis, one in four or 15 million have severe arthritis, um, and half of those have persistent severe arthritis and constant pain. Um, the numbers here are pretty staggering. Um, and the interesting thing about severe joint pain is that it tends to vary depending on region and uh segment of the population and also according to comorbidities. So in the United States, when they did this review, the range of severe arthritis was from uh, uh, arthritis in general, was lowest in Utah at 20% and highest in Mississippi at 46%. It's higher in women than in men, 29% versus 23%. It's higher as you get older. That's not surprising as you can well imagine. Um, uh, it's highest in uh, African-Americans, 42%, then in Hispanics, which is 36%, then in whites, 23%. Uh, so overall, the number of severe joint pain um, can go from as low as 26% overall. Um, but then when you look at segments of the population that have a comorbidity, that number goes up. So if you're obese the risk of severe joint pain goes up to 32%. If you have heart disease, it goes up to 34%. If you have diabetes, 41%. If you have another disability of any kind, arthritis is part of that picture 46% of the time. And the highest rate of severe arthritis or severe joint pain is seen in patients who have serious psychological distress or 56%. So, these comorbidities, those population groups, these regions of the country are the things that you have to deal with diagnostically when seeing and treating patients uh, who have musculoskeletal complaints. Certainly a big challenge, one that you are certainly up to doing on a daily basis. Be sure to tune in to Room Now during ACR. That's going to be November 5th, Saturday, November 5th through Friday, November 5th, is the opening ceremonies, through Tuesday, November 9th. We've got a lot of good coverage. My recommendation is go to our website, 
um, the regular website, go to your registration, your registration, sign up for a topic report. Again, if you're the goop, the, the, the goopus, that's a lupus and gout crossover, goopus. Um, a lupus gal, you might want to sign up for the lupus reports. If you're a gout guy, you might want to sign up for the gout reports. At the end of ACR, you'll get one email, which will be a download of all the stuff we cover on gout and or lupus. Another way to cover the meeting. We'll give you updated ways in the next few days on these QD clinic reports. Take care. Welcome to QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Room Now is going to be bringing you our expanded coverage of ACR 2021, the Convergence Meeting, all virtual in the comfort of your own home and fuzzy slippers. But we'll be there. Um, you're going to see a lot of interviews, a lot of panel discussions, a lot of um, great tweets. You can follow us on Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. Hope you're um, around to see what we do. Today's case is the thyroid lump. And I use the term lump, could be a mass, could mean that I'm lumping thyroid with other things, could mean it's to kind of indiscriminately put things together. And, and that's really what happens with thyroid disease and what I'm going to describe. A uh, 56-year-old woman uh, is not feeling good, having fatigue, um, some hip pain. Um, she's a bicyclist, not sure why that's going on, goes to primary care, and ANA is done. Sort of like that's where all stories start to go bad, huh? Well, the ANA comes back positive, 1 to 160 in a speckled pattern. That leads to a rheumatology consult. That leads to a lot of testing. That leads to a trial of hydroxychloroquine and pain medicines. That leads to a call to me should call me to begin with because, you know, it should have led to a bunch of questions like, could this be lupus? Because there's really not much else in the story for lupus. But um, again, fatigue, a little bit of joint pain, monarticular, large joint, one hip, unlikely to be lupus. Um, but, you know, other things that you'd go down and make sure it's lupus. And is this early undifferentiated lupus? No, this is, you know, aches and pains, maybe from other reasons like sleep and depression or God knows what, but certainly not lupus. And of course, the woman has a history of Hashimoto's thyroiditis and is on um, Synthroid and is currently suboptimal in her Synthroid um, dosing. And she doesn't want to take so much. She'd rather feel this way. Maybe feeling this way is the joint and fatigue stuff. So I want to remind you of some of the numbers on thyroid disease and autoantibodies. Uh, it's actually much higher than you think. Up to 80% of patients who have acute or chronic thyroid disease are going to have a positive ANA. It's kind of shocking. You know, and, and that number goes high, higher. It starts at a low of about 33%. You know, maybe the youngest people, the healthiest people, uh, uncertain diagnosis, new diagnosis, it might be as low as 30. But as you get older and older, it goes as high as 80%. As you go older, so does the frequency of the totally useless antithyroid peroxidase antibodies. I don't think that really cinches any diagnosis, to be honest with you, but it adds to the picture. And there's a multi, meaning there's a multiplicity of autoantibodies directed at thyroid antigens not unlike what we see with other autoimmune disease. So age plays a role, actually having thyroid disease. And I think thyroid disease is a little bit like Sjogren's. 
meaning an autoimmune attack on a gland that when it's done, the gland is destroyed, doesn't work well again, and you have to use replacement therapy. Am I not describing Sjogren's here? For which, by the way, that autoimmune attack, that inflammatory attack, um, doesn't need further immune suppression or inflammatory control. But you're dealing with the consequences of a dysfunctional, hypofunctioning gland after the immune activity. So the interesting thing is a few things. One, that, um, that this is more frequent in women than in men. Uh, it increases with age. Um, there's a co-association. You know, lupus patients and RA patients have a higher risk of thyroid disease. It's one of the more common comorbidities. Lupus patients don't usually get extra cancers, but when they do, thyroid cancer is probably the most leading cause of cancer in lupus patients with a rate of about 25 to 30% of all the cancers in lupus patients when that does occur. Um, that... Thyroid disease is actually more, also more common in RA patients than in controls. In this one study, 16% versus 11%. Um, so overall, RA and thyroid patients have a twofold risk of thyroid disease. But thyroid patients themselves have autoantibodies and conversely, a low risk of RA and SLE. But those should be easy for you to diagnose when that happens and if that happens. Otherwise, there's no sense in treating a blood test. Um, interestingly, uh, I think this is, I know it's been shown for RA, but I'm not sure if it's been shown in, lu in lupus that um, the offspring of RA patients are also more likely to have uh, thyroid disease. And then lastly, as you know, the, uh, many autoimmune, autoimmune phenomena occur as a result of immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy for like melanoma, etc. And endocrinopathies are more common than are rheumatoid arthritis and PMR, uh, and hypophysitis leads the way, and probably next most common is thyroid disease, um, with a man ultimately manifesting as hypothyroid. So again, this association between thyroid and autoantibodies and uh, autoantibodies from that, maybe being associated with a higher risk of other autoimmune con conditions, needs to be carefully considered and understood by all clinicians, especially by rheumatologists. That's it. Check out our next QD clinic. Check out our coverage of ACR 2021. Hi, I'm Jack Cush and welcome to QD clinic. QD clinic is brought to you by Room Now's coverage of ACR 21. It's upcoming. Get ready. Today's case is a think piece on hair loss. This came up recently, and I thought I'd impart with you my particular wisdom. You know the case. They're all the same. You're talking to a patient. You're going through a review of systems. Women, much more so than men, will complain of having hair loss. What do you mean hair loss? Well, it's all over the place. It's on my coat. It's on my sweater. It's on the shower. It's on the floor. It's, you know, whatever. And um, I don't profess to be a dermatologist nor an expert in alopecia. But, you know, alopecia that I'm going to worry about is very different than routine hair loss, which is very common and very common in women over the age of 40, maybe even younger than that. Men, we don't really care. You know, we get out of the shower, we shake off, we run. Hair is not that big a deal unless we're losing it too, but then it's pretty obvious. 
But what we're talking about here is whether it's pathologic or not. So um, often it's not. And I want to give you my particular um, views on when it is. First, is it, we're talking hair loss, hair fall, or alopecia. Most people, you can call it hair loss or hair fall. I don't think it's pathologic um, until it's visible by you, the untrained eye rheumatologist. Meaning the patient says, look here, and they show you their scalp and there's a big patch. Or, you know, you're, you can count the strands on the top of their head. Obvious alopecia is obvious alopecia. We don't need to really talk about that. Um, but is, does the patient's opinion matter, and should you be alarmed as they are alarmed? I have one defining question and one corollary to it. And, of course, the question is, is there hair on the pillow when you wake up? No, I don't care about hair on your coat. No, I don't care about hair in the shower because pretty much everyone has that complaint, meaning then it's got little discriminatory value. It has no specificity to it. But hair that wakes up that you is on the pillow when you wake up means that you have spontaneous hair fall and you have to shake off the pillow or brush off the pillow every morning. Otherwise, it's an embarrassment. And my only corollary to this, when the patient starts saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, I never noticed it before. It seems a lot more. It seems a lot more since you've been on the medicine. The yeah, buts don't count. The only thing that's going to make that stick with me is, again, hair on the pillow when you wake up, plus the corollary, which is your hairdresser. What does your hairdresser say? Strangely enough, I have found the hairdresser who's been doing that person's hair for a long time is the one who says, hey, what's going on with your hair? Do you know you've got, and they start pointing out spots or they say you're a whole lot thinner. That's a trained hair expert. And I would take their opinion as saying that's medically important and can factor into the diagnosis of something like lupus or a drug-induced hair loss, which can happen with some of our drugs. That's my two cents on alopecia and hair loss. You know, Room Now, we're covering ACR 2021 starting on actually the week of November the 5th, but officially on November the 5th. We give you a virtual seat where you can see the latest studies and what the big thinkers are thinking during ACR 21. Be there. Sign up. Hi, this is Cutie Clinic. I'm Jack Cush. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now. And its coverage of ACR 21, the ACR has gone virtual, so you don't have to go. Just follow us on Room Now. You can enjoy the meeting that way. So this odd little diatribe is going to be about um, some half-baked ideas. Uh, some blogs, articles, and whatnot that I've kind of half-written. I'm just going to enunciate these for you and you're going to tell me what you think you know if any of these really move you send me a note saying i really want to hear about that so here's some titles i get these ideas i write them down on bar napkins i and and you know wrappers from uh, whataburger and i stick them in my pocket and then i come home and i write a title on a word document and it gets listed in my need to write a blog file Here's some titles. Everyone's a bad patient. Uh, I need a nemesis. Uh, let's see. Uh, master diagnostician. War on RA number five. Cringy things. 
even I'm interested in what that is. I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, collateral COVID damage. Asco bingo becomes Jenga rheumatology. Um, consults in cars. I think I wrote that one. That was pretty good. Um, see here naloxone we need to talk about naloxone what a bunch of nonsense that is i hate my job do it again scary room words the pissed off patient the augmented rheumatologist um let's see here uh an sop for lunch shutdowns hmm Let's see. Um, finding better patients. I like that one. Clinic exorcisms. Actually, I think I wrote that one. It was about bad patients, bad partners, wrongful things you're doing that you need to exercise. Anyway, weirdness. That's too general, isn't it? Um, my favorite questions. Fear of my partner, Dr. Dow. She's little, but I'm afraid of her. Zero uncertainty. I like that one. Um, I wrote down Dr. Hal Paulus. I must have, Hal Paulus was a giant. I could write forever about him. Uh, regenerative medicine. Oh, my God. Re look at the podcast from this past week. I go off on that. The pain objective. Uh, carbohydrate downers. Debunking myths. Um, the home visit. Have you, have you ever done that? I've done that a few times. It's pretty interesting. Don't think I want to do it as a career. The second biologic choice, stem cell fiascos. Again, more on regenerative medicine. Stupid things we do to arthritis. I like that. Um, trust. You know, there's a shortage of trust. Um, the devil and prior authorizations. That one needs to be written. Uh, let's see here. It might be just a few more um, milestones, plus minus weaning, ending on a positive note, top eight complaints by RA patients, uh, TV drug advertising. <laughs> Listening part two, indecision, funny terms, less is not more, fight or switch. We're coming to the end, folks. And lastly, um, risk and ambiguity and who should treat fibromyalgia. Those are just a few of the blogs I have been thinking about in the last three years. If there's a consensus, I might actually write one of them. Tune in for more QD Clinics. Hi, this is QD Clinic and I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow's coverage of ACR 2021. Smart rheumatologists will be tuned in to ACR and our coverage. Today, we're going to talk about immunosuppression. Who's immunosuppressed? You know, we've talked a lot about our, the patients that are, are, the risks that our patients have during COVID. I've asserted our patients have done generally very well, and that's held up to be true. Most pa anti-rheumatic patients have done well during COVID, but there's a, a good stream of evidence that says that there are some of our patients who are at higher risk. 
uh, and those are the people who are most immunosuppressed. The bottom line is that pa it's patients with activity, um, autoimmune diseases that are particularly active, uh, like lupus and vasculitis, and then the use of certain drugs, rituximab leading the way, but also even drugs like abatacept, JAK inhibitors, and high-dose steroids. But um, the question is, how many people are, in fact, immunosuppressed or immunocompromised? Um, there's one statistic out there that says that there are 10 million Americans who are currently um, within this category, and that it makes up about 3% of the overall population. Um, I think patients who are very old, and you can be 65 but look like you're 50, and that doesn't make you old, but you can be 65 and look like you're 75, yeah, now you're looking your age and beyond, you're likely to have senescence of your immune response and be at higher risk. Um, again, I think age is a factor. I think debility is a factor in being immunosuppressed and immunocompromised. And then certain diseases, certainly cancer, people undergoing cancer and chemotherapy, people who are um, transplant patients who are on um, transplant suppressing drugs, um, and then our patients, you know, uh, lupus seems to lead the way, more so than inflammatory arthritis. Um, but as we said, the drugs that we use also color the picture of who is immunocompromised. That's it for this edition of QD Clinics. Tune in for more.